Welcome to Same Surgeon, Different Life, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. This series focuses on demystifying cardiothoracic surgery and presenting the remarkable backstories of surgeons from a variety of backgrounds and in various career stages that have led them to become the face of CT surgery. I'm Dr. David Tom Cook, and in each episode, Dr. Tom Varghese and I will get to know more about our colleagues, the obstacles, the success stories, trade-offs, and pivotal moments that have shaped their careers as well as their personal missions. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. On today's STS podcast, Same Surgeon, Different Light, we have a conversation with Dr. Richard Prager. Dr. Prager is the Richard and Norma Sons Research Professor of Cardiac Surgery, and he is the Interim Chair of the Department of Cardiac Surgery at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Dr. Prager is also a past president of the STS. We discuss his life growing up in New Jersey, what drew him to cardiothoracic surgery, and as STS president, why he developed the Task Force in Diversity and Inclusion, as well as other topics. Well, uh, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Prager, for joining us today on this podcast, Same Surgeon, Different Light. And I'm really excited to talk with you today. As I always tell people, if they have any problems with the way I do things, I just blame you since you're the one who trained me. Yeah, that's right. I remember hearing that once before already. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I, I admit to nothing. That's right. So, you know, we're recording this during the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, how's your department holding up? Actually, I think uh, fortunately uh, we have done admirably well. Uh, we have basically have four segments to the department, the clinical sides, both the pediatric and adult. Uh, we were not as affected on the pediatric side, on the congenital side, although the hospital basically uh, called a timeout. Uh, uh, and that obviously limited patients coming in, but they did not have the dramatic effects we saw on the adult side with a considerable number of COVID patients. Uh, we basically then uh, became the attendings for the cardiovascular ICU, which did have some ECMO, COVID ECMO, and only the most urgent of urgent cases were done. So we really closed, essentially, other than for unstable patients or acute emergencies. Uh, We have, if you will, rebounded uh, back to almost normal volumes uh, with frankly, a legitimate plan for a second surge uh, with beds and things like that. I think from the energy perspective and the reality perspective, our department has also done pretty well, staying kind of level. Uh, Childcare is a little bit of an issue. Uh, There is a little more frustration than normal just with, if you will, what's part of an economic recovery plan for Michigan medicine. Yeah. And how broad is it? There have been uh, furloughs as well as uh, reductions in force, polite for firing. Disheartened many, because uh, many wonderful people we worked with. So, you know, this, as everyone who you will interview during this phase, this is a very challenging time. And I think people that don't admit it may not be being honest about it. So it's not just challenges in the hospital, it's out of the hospital and it's the people you work with or the people who have lost their livelihoods. Hard times. 
And as you bring that up as, as the department chair and the, and the leader of the faculty, you know, some of the faculty are young, you know, some of the faculty have been, been through this pandemic and other crises. Uh, you know, one thing I've noticed about surgery um, is there's not just the, the patients that you worried about who are at home suffering from cardiovascular disease, not getting treated, but in this sort of economic time, you also realize the, the, the economic importance of a surgeon, of a proceduralist, to the financial well-being of the hospital and really the support of other service lines everywhere from uh, radiology technicians to um, uh, support staff and other folks who are relying upon that revenue stream of a, of a proceduralist, of a surgeon. No, I think that's very true and actually one of the things that happened at the University of Michigan is we had shovels in the ground and steel in the ground for a new hospital that was going to be about two-thirds cardiovascular, right next to our cardiovascular center. And because of budgetary challenges, that actually has been put on hold. But while it's on hold, uh, and it, uh, frankly, while it's on hold, they're redesigning every room probably to be negative pressure. Oh, yeah. whatever, 260, 280 rooms will now each individually be negative pressure. Um, so it's not the worst thing, but it's, it'll delay the building a year because we, we were already starting it. And it went on hold, but the, the reality of that is as it's on hold, we have been, you know, asked to, could we increase our volume 5%? Mm. Why? Because revenue will increase accordingly. Uh, not necessarily 5%. And we are neurosciences, cardiovascular diseases, complex cancers are three major things for most major hospitals. And so there, you know, there, there are challenges put in front of us that in our specialty, we deal with challenges, you know, on the whole reasonably well, that is part of what we do. That's why we do what we do. But yes. some of these things we can't totally control. It's dual pressure, pressure to care for our communities in regards to patients and care for our colleagues in regards to the financial health of the institution. Correct. You know, uh, the, 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 one of the, the main points of this podcast is really to get to know the surgeon, you know, underneath the hood. And so let's talk a little bit more about you. You know, I, uh, you were born in Brooklyn uh, at the close of World War II. So you're one of the original baby boomers. Just uh, about, just, just about. I think I'm a and, little old. To be and then from Brooklyn, um, moved to New Jersey and grew up in New Jersey. Right. So of, of course I have to ask, growing up, were, did you support the Dodgers or did you support the Yankees? I was born in Brooklyn. I'm a Brooklyn Dodger fan. You know, I wanted to grow up and be Jackie Robinson. Be Jackie Robinson. So then uh, you were also part of, part in the midst of that debate between who was better, Duke Snyder, Willie Mays or, or Mickey Mantle. So who, right. well, I was, a, you know, we got to see three of the best in baseball. Yeah. And your dad was a doctor, uh, yes. internal medicine. Mm -hmm. Tell me about how your dad's profession sort of shaped your, your view on medicine. Uh, it obviously was a foundational aspect of my decision to go into medicine. Uh, one is I, I thought, um, it represented one of the highest, if not the highest calling as a profession. 
to is he worked very hard and was committed to others. And that concept, which all of us still, you know, uh, basically take an oath about, uh, it became very easy for me to say, if I could do it, this is what I want to do. And I like probably my generation, you know, I went on house calls with my father. He had a portable EKG machine and I would carry that. And then he'd take it from me before he walked into the house with, with, along with his large leather doctor bag, as we called it. So he'd carry two things into houses. This is when people still made house calls. Emergency departments weren't where you went right away. And they called an ambulance if you had to go to the hospital type of thing. So it uh, obviously was the major imprint upon me. Then you next got your start in medicine working with environmental services. Yeah, I started, uh, my, you know, there were, there were always summer jobs in Hackensack and we all had to get them and all my friends growing up, we all got different jobs. And he said, if you want a hospital job, just apply. And I did and I washed walls and floors and then I actually got to take over, someone was ill. So I became the major environmental services person for five Conklin, as I remember. And so yeah. I would just do every patient's room and say hello to patients and things like that. You know, I started off as an EKG tech uh, oh, did you really? yeah. uh, in the emergency room. This was actually during sort of the tail end of the AIDS uh, epidemic in California. So you were able to kind of see sort of behind the scenes view yeah. of how healthcare worked. Uh, I would imagine sort of uh, not only following your dad on house calls and dealing with patients and, and interacting with them in their own environment, on their own turf, uh, but also being behind the scenes uh, of a, what makes a hospital run uh, must have shaped your view on, uh, on, on applying your patient care and cardiothoracic surgery. No, I, th I think it did. And it shows you how broad and big the team needs to be to be successful. And that when you walk down the halls in the hospital, there's no reason not to say hello to everyone. Yeah. So Very why simple. CT surgery? Uh, hardest thing I could think of to do. You know, I set the crown on the what I thought was the highest mountain, and if I could get there, I wanted to get there. Yeah. Plus, it was really unfolding in the later 50s when uh, I was junior high heading into high school, and I would hear about it from my father, and he'd send some patients to New York for operations before the hospital I was in started doing them. Um, so it just had this allure to it, frankly. And uh, you did your uh, general surgery residency and fellowship at University of Michigan. I did. So really sort of uh, uh, surrounded by sort of a who's who in both general surgery and cardiothoracic surgery. You know, talk a little bit about sort of uh, some of your mentors at Michigan, um, both uh, faculty and then peer mentors, because your peer mentors, your, your peer group was, was also extremely impressive. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I was very fortunate to, to go to Michigan, if you will. Culture-wise, it was a reasonably calm and level time. It was theoretically not a pyramid, but uh, there were people that did not advance and more people than you would expect. So uh, while not called a pyramid, it was somewhat competitive, uh, but reasonably balanced. and. I was fortunate enough really to have wonderful people to look up to and learn from. The Dr. Child of Child's liver classification, Jerry Turcott, 
uh, W.J. Fry, vascular surgeon who went on and went to uh, UT Southwestern as chair of the Department of Surgery. Um, and, and I could really, Norm Thompson, thyroid surgery, I could go on and on. And then in the transition into cardiac and thoracic, had Dr. Sloan, who you smiled at and never disagreed with, because that was, without any question, you were wrong uh, if you did that, uh, but was really uh, a model of focus, expertise, and excellence, and admitting if you made a mistake. Uh, and then obviously the teacher of teachers, someone named Marvin Kirsch, Mark Oringer, the same style, brought, brought general thoracic to a whole different level. And I was a house officer when he first came from Hopkins. So some of it, we all learned together. You can tell him I said that, but we did all learn a little of it together. Uh, um, uh, and Doug Barrent, who did a lot of the kids and then moved on to Iowa. My peer group, I believe was somewhat unique. Ed Beauvais was my junior, um, but we never told him that because he never seemed to act that way. So, you know, uh, uh, he, was precocious. He, had, he had unique abilities, even as a resident. John Brown was a classmate of mine. Um, uh, he had uh, spent his time at the NIH and I spent my lab time at the university and he was a year ahead. So we all finished together. Um, and we actually finished in my year five people, two of whom started practices of cardiac surgery around the country. One was faculty at Creighton, John went to IU and I went to Vanderbilt. So we were fortunate and we, in some ways you quietly compete with each other, but most of the time you don't really, but you set the bar for each other. And uh, they were all frankly, very balanced, wonderful people. And it made those two years, um, I think as good two years as you could have in a CT residency, frankly. And it really that sort of shows the sort of academic power uh, of that faculty and uh, of that peer group. And, you know, you spent half your career in academia, uh, bookended with Vanderbilt and University of Michigan, and then half your career in sort of the, the private sector, uh, heading the cardiothoracic surgical program at St. Joseph's Mercy. Are, are, were those two sides of the same coin or their commonalities um, with those practice uh, uh, groups or paradigms? Well, I think it's the same coin, but I, do, I would rather term it the way you did in the latter part of your question. There are commonalities to both. Mm -hmm. um, both superb patient care, focus on the patient, um, innovation, uh, and efficiencies, um, th those are commonalities. Uh, the, the differences I think are, are uh, under, understood differences. While St. Joe's in Ann Arbor, uh, and we were com competitors of the U, and the U is a competitor of St. Joe's, so I have, as I say, been on both sides of that street. It's like Michigan, Ohio uh, State. Like a, a little bit, but actually we have a much better rapport and, our, and we don't <laughs> yell at each other and say the coaches shouldn't have coached and do all those things. Yeah. Um, uh, but the reality at St. Joe's, and they had multiple residencies, including a very good general surgery residency, their focus was patient care. Yes, their focus was education and training, but their focus was patient care. Uh, you go three and a half miles away and your focus is patient care. It is also education, 
at a much broader scale. And it is research and innovation. And some of the dollars in academic medical centers that are come into, if it's an integrated hospital and, and medical school system, some of the dollars come to help fund research. So that part makes it strikingly different. Uh, but I think uh, the focus when you see someone in the outpatient office or clinic, depending on what you call it, is that is all the same. That's all the same, which is what made that part very easy. You know, one sort of area of cooperation in both the academic and the community-based practice is quality improvement. And in your time at St. Joseph, you were, uh, it looks like at a developed a, a what used to be called HICFA quality program. And then of course you've developed a statewide collaborative in cardiac surgery quality that really serves as a national model. Can you talk a little bit more about that in regards to uh, building a quality improvement program from the grassroots up that benefits patients? I, I think uh, the reality of being part of one of the first three and then seven sites of what was the HICFA demonstration project, which is now CMS, and probably many have heard of demonstration projects, orthopedics. There is one in valve disease uh, uh, as well coming out of CMS now. But what that did as a platform for me as a young surgeon, having spent whatever, five years in academics at Vanderbilt and three or four years at St. Joe's, and then we had this opportunity. What it really was based on was having data, looking at our own data and seeing whether we could, if you will, ratchet up our efficiencies and be competitive in a bundled, if you will, payment system, provide the same level, if not better care, with an incentive to be better that you need to keep your, your margin for your institution or you've hurt your institution. And so I think it taught the group of us that were involved that data are critically important. You need to review the data, you need to share the data, you need to talk about opportunities. And it's fine if you have a financial person at the table if that's what you want, as well as a quality person from a quality department, the billing department, and your surgeons and Obviously, you need a, a series of great efficiency experts and nurses at the table to say where you could do better. That was a bridge, I think, to the next step of as the SDS database was evolving and we happened to have a state meeting once a year of what, was called, what is called the Michigan Society of Thoracic and Cardiovascular Surgeons, which would get together basically once a year, usually for two or three days, have a couple of outside speakers, present cases, do things. And a group of us started talking, why don't we just look at our SDS data together? And then we had a group say, well, listen, I looked at mine and we're all about the SDS level. What's the importance of trying it? Uh, you know, fast forward to today, we starting this week have a four day state meeting, all virtual, one day data managers, next day perfusion, next day plenary session with guest speakers. And we're going to do general thoracic data that afternoon with Andrew Chang and Rob Welsh, who's from Beaumont, Andrew from the university. And the next day I lead uh, after a few more talks and Mike Mack is going to give us a, the Sir Magdi Yacoub lecture because he would come to some of our meetings with his friendships and many of the surgeons in Grand Rapids. Um, so we have an honorary lecture for him. And that morning we also go over all our mitral data. Since we don't have new data for 2020 because of COVID, 
we're going over three years of micro data, micro repairs, percent, things like that. So the background for this was the platform of learning to use data, what can we do with it, and why don't we use it to help everyone get better? Not to penalize, uh, not frankly to publicly report, but our website has, has the composite metric for the adult. It's not updated because of this year, but uh, we have basically all the sites reporting voluntarily, at least their composite, not the individual surgeon composite. So that it's, it's evolved just from a practical perspective of what's, what should we do as our responsibility as cardiac and thoracic surgeons as a profession for, if you will, in quotes, the public. And the public includes us because we will be patients at one point in time too. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an amazing uh, result of getting uh, a bunch of different stakeholders with, quite frankly, different agendas in a room with a common agenda for patient care right. and patient quality, uh, all sort of on top of the STS database, or at least mm -hmm. those data variables. In 2017, you became president of the STS, uh, following in the footsteps uh, of uh, Michigan faculty, such as Herb Sloan and Mark Oringer. Um, and one of the many things you did during that year, other than uh, accrue a frequent flyer miles, um, was you established the STS Task Force for Diversity and Inclusion. Um, and this was obviously diversity and inclusion has been a, a, a big issue in our specialty in healthcare um, for decades. Um, but your, your uh, move to establish this task force uh, preceded the, the current um, mainstream um, uh, uh, activism that's been generated by George Floyd uh, and uh, the structural racism movement um, preceded that by two to three years. What motivated you to develop this task force and, and what did you see as gaps within our specialty? Well, it's, uh, I appreciate the question uh, and, and putting it in the context as you put it, it was before, before all the appropriate movements that have occurred after George Floyd and, and all these uh, uh, terrible events, frankly, for all of us. Um, I, I think some of it, honestly, to share with the group is my background growing up in Hackensack, New Jersey, which was multiracial having the good fortune to basically make friends across racial boundaries, play sports with people, and recognize that there were differences in lifestyles and in opportunities. Um, and, uh, you know, when unfortunately some of our friends pass away now and we, I, fly back, which I haven't done in the last year or two, to funerals, uh, the funerals have a blend of races for the people that were very close together, played ball together or went to classes together or still stay in contact. Um, and I think that was a foundation as was frankly watching my father treat everyone and recognizing we had, I think in, for a population of about 30,000 when I was growing up in Hackensack, two black doctors in the community at that point. Um, and then watching Michigan evolve, frankly, when we had, uh, we have balanced men and women while we have trained 
very successful, such as yourselves, black surgeons. Um, we probably have not had uh, the broad spectrum that we wish to have as far as an educational institution and training programs. So I think that's fast forwarded to today, but I think uh, my desire was to move this along at that point in time. And uh, I think uh, with all the help under your leadership, this is moving along and, and putting things in front of us that we need to know and we need to see. You had mentioned, you know, uh, part of the impetus is your, your background growing up in New Jersey and watching your dad. Did you, uh, uh, some of the house calls that you accompanied him on, uh, uh, did you talk about some of the, the diverse uh, cultures and communities that you entered on, on these house calls? Yeah, we, well, especially when I was able to drive at whatever it was, 16 or 17, and he was older, I would drive him at night, and we just drove into the neighborhoods and parked the car and he walked in. Now, they usually knew who the doctor was in the community, whether mm -hmm. it was a community of recent immigrants, and we had many, because uh, it was a very blended, semi-industrial community. Our high school soccer team had two people that, uh, whose families had recently moved from Southern Italy, so we were a really good soccer team in high school, because yeah. we had a lot of European talent. Um, so you went in different neighborhoods, and uh, it was just what was acceptable then. Now, some of this changed in the riots of 67, um, but actually Hackensack was reasonably calm during that time. Englewood wasn't so calm. Newark actually was not calm at all, unfortunately. Um, so things weren't perfect, but at least in my time there, I had uh, a very fortunate, uh, fortunate opportunities, both as an observer and a participant. Now, the, um, the task force uh, developed a climate survey for the membership, and those results were published, and, and there's been other efforts from the task force. Did you, have you learned anything new uh, that you did not know about uh, diversity and inclusion um, uh, in the last couple of years uh, from the efforts of the STS um, um, with, with uh, some of the new findings or survey results or, or community discussions? What I would say I've learned is that um, we need to move faster. We need to awaken more people. We need to work on the pipeline and that should be our responsibility as well. Whether it starts in junior high and people giving talks and taking uh, cow hearts and showing them into things or doing it or taking a portable echo machine and showing people, you know, a, a, a ninth grader what their heart looks like. I think that is, uh, while we can talk about the pipeline, we need to play in, in creating a, a much broader pipeline. Mm -hmm. That one of my take homes, and frankly, that diversity is LGBTQ. It is race. Um, uh, it is gender. It is the broadest of terms, and it may expand further. Um, and, and that's okay. And that's okay. So I think those are probably my major take homes. And a lot of our universities have doctors of tomorrow, have this or that, but we're just scratching the surface, frankly, I think for most of these things. And so any of those take home messages as, as the interim chair of your department sort of changes your view on how you manage or run your department? 
Uh, the answer to that's absolutely yes. Uh, we have, and you know many of these people, you know, we have talked about how do we interview, where do we look for people, where, and, and a comment often comes out, and I will be blunt, you know, well, we want to train people that are on the podium, and I would say, no, I want to train people that are going to be leaders wherever they are. If it's a 200-bed hospital or a 1,200-bed hospital, it doesn't matter to me. We need to provide skill sets. And my hope is that we, and I think, frankly, most of our programs, will broaden how we look for talent. It's not just, you know, what you got on your test scores. You know, I mean, if, you know, if you use a football analogy, you know, can, can someone run through the wall? Bo Schembecker, you know, would you run through, would you run through the wall for Bo? Everybody did. Everybody did. And they all had different talent levels, but they all got to that point. We, we need to be broader. We don't, you know, not everybody goes to certain medical schools. There are tiers of medical schools, but there are stars in every one. And I just think we need to refresh our thinking about how we look for people, how we look at the high school student to mentor them and how we look at the, if they're coming out of a general surgery residency or if they're coming right out of medical school. Ranking medical schools to me to find the greatest cardiac or general thoracic surgeon is of very little use today. It has a platform, but it's very little use. You know, those, those are, you know, great words in terms of how we view uh, candidates, um, you know, uh, is not about fit, but about one's own view of their future and, uh, and how that future uh, uh, betters patients care and advances the specialty. And, you know, circling back when you decided to go into cardiothoracic surgery, you know, obviously it was sort of the, ex the expansive nature of cardi cardiac surgery really with cardiopulmonary bypass and all the different things that are along the pipe. And now we've seen mitral valve repair and uh, endovascular treatments and robotics and et cetera. Where, where do we go from here in cardiothoracic surgery? What's, what's on the future and what's on the horizon? Why should a uh, young person uh, growing up now um, decide to enter our specialty? I think it, it still represents one of the specialties that's going to stay um, as a leader pushing the horizon. Uh, one, because of innovation and technology, uh, which we need to be adopters selectively of changes. Two is we will be a last vestige of some of the major procedures, some of the major open procedures. So I think it represents something that has a balance of it's big, but it's closed and it's really big, it's open. And, and I think that if you're interested in pursuing advances in technical challenges, in continuing to acquire, acquire knowledge and knowledge bases, as well as new techniques, it's an ideal specialty. And we, you know, there are, um, we help a whole lot of people. We help a whole lot of people, whether it's lung cancer, esophageal cancer, myasthenia, you know, coronary disease, complex valve disease, as we call it in Michigan, uh, um, uh, extreme aortic disease at times. Uh, we help a lot of people. Extreme aortic disease, that's, that, that might be uh, lifted from some of my thought processes as a fellow uh, on call. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I'm sure you saw some of the extreme. Yeah, I saw a lot of extreme aortic disease in Michigan. Yeah, yeah, we're going to get t-shirts, I think, for our. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much, Dr. Prager. This has been wonderful. Uh, it's been good to, to kind of see you in a different light and for uh, our members and, and, and other colleagues to kind of understand what makes you tick and why our specialty is, is such a wonderful field. Well, David, thank you. I, I appreciate being asked to do this. I was surprised to be asked to do this. And I know our specialty is in a good place as long as we have people like you as well. Oh, great. Well, thank you very much and stay safe. Okay, you too, David. Thank you. This has been Same Surgeon, Different Life, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag, the face of CT surgery. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.